Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Japanese Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Takeshi Morisato. Today, I'll be talking to Wojon Zhou, who is the author of The Cinema of Ozuyasujiro, Histories of the Everyday, a book that was just published in 2017 by Edinburgh University Press. Hello, Wojon. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. We are so excited to talk to you about your new book on Japanese film, and especially your insight into the works of Ozu Yasujiro, the master, Ozu. Uh, But before getting into it, I would like to start with a question about you. Could you introduce yourself by telling us about your career, research, and also how you are involved with this field of Japanese and film studies? Yes. um, Well, my name uh, is again, Ujian. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's all right. <laughs> yeah. Perfectly fine. Um, I'm originally from South Korea, uh, but now I'm working in uh, Nagoya University in Japan. Uh, I've been researching here since 2013, so about more than seven years now. And before that, I was doing postgraduate uh, study in UK. Um, actually, University of Warwick uh, in UK, uh, where I received my PhD in film studies. And Ozu Yashiro was my, well, the topic at that time. So I wrote my PhD uh, thesis on Ozu, uh, which uh, evolved into this uh, uh, monograph, The Cinema of Ozu Yashiro, Histories of the Everyday, uh, published in t- 2017. And I, I was interested in, uh, I got interested in uh, Japanese cinema a uh, long time before that, actually, uh, when I went to America, where I first uh, watched some Japanese cinema, and also was a part of it. Uh, I, I watched Late Spring, uh, Tokyo uh, Story, uh, of course, and I was very, very, very impressed by, um, by the quality of, of those two pictures. So gradually, I, I thought about well studying about Ozu, and that lead uh, uh, into the postgraduate study in UK. Mm-hmm. So the the birth of this book, um, so the, how you came to write this book, is because of the, your postgraduate study, and even before that, you encounter with Ozu's movies, and then that's how you came to write this book. Okay, so. <clears throat> This is really a fantastic book on the film of Ozu. Excuse Thank me. <laughs> Thank you. But the because of that, I have so many questions, and I think um, it, it's quite an inspiring book um, for me, even as a philosopher. But the first book, the first list of questions that I would like to ask is this. This book provides this uh, very comprehensive analysis of modern Japan. 
extending from two, uh, 1920s to 1960s, both as the background and and the foreground of Oz's works with this notion of the everyday, which is in the title of the book, The Everyday. Can you tell us more about this importance of this term everyday and also how does Ozu use this conception of the present or everyday? Um, you know, simply, was it merely descriptive or kind of reproduction of what we go through every day? Or does it have any element that we may call prescriptive or even fictional? Um, that's some, something that deviates from our mundane everyday. Um Right. So I think I have to combine the, the, the questions together. One is about the, uh, the everyday itself. And the other, I think, is about, um, well, how it was con- uh, conceptualized by Ozu uh, when he made the film. Uh, firstly, about the uh, everyday itself, um, Ozu is, is quite well known for the director of the everyday. Uh, well, in Japanese, it's called Nichijou. Um but we can think about it in, in two separate ways. Uh, one is about the subject matter he dealt with in his films, and the other is how he dealt with uh, in his films. Um, so, uh, so the first thing, the subject matter, is uh, the everyday life of the urban uh, Japanese uh, during the uh, 1920s uh, and 30s until 1960s when and when Ozu died. So he always dealt with his uh, everyday life of the, the ordinary Japanese people. Um, here the everyday means uh, things that happens at usual and repetitive pace uh, in terms of time and also in terms of space uh, around nearby places. So it's just, uh, it happens around us. Uh, the ordinary people. Um, this definition actually have a little bit of danger of generalization because um, when we say Japanese people, uh, it means all. Does it mean all the Japanese? Uh, of course, of course not. Um, also dealt with a very particular kind of Japanese people. Uh, it could be class. It could be gender. It could be generation. It could be yeah anything. Um, so we have to be very careful uh, when we understand the everyday of Ozus uh, that it's not very, uh, it doesn't cover every, every, every day uh, that happens in, in, in Japan. It could be very particular type um, or specific kind of everyday. And the second thing about how he dealt with that everyday in his film, it's about, uh, I think, it can be about aesthetic quality or style, film style. And this was quite, uh, has been quite well known in Western countries uh, for, um, by Western scholars. Uh, they said um, we can see very empty or static or silent kind of time space uh, in all these films um, where it seems nothing actually happens. Uh, so these was became kind of represent, uh, tentative uh, kind of terms for uh, the style of Ozu's films, uh, which is quite true in a way. But I also think, um, well, although looking empty and static in appearance, 
Ozu's films articulate also fullness and liveliness as well. Uh, we can see it uh, in his mise-en-scene. Uh, we can find it in his editing and narrative, etc., etc. Uh, simply put, uh, I, I would say there are, there are actually a lot of things happening in, in his narrative. Um, well, daughters are marrying, fathers are worrying about dying, getting old, uh, families are reacting with each other, etc., etc., um, and in order to show that we see a lot of characters are moving here and there. So um, if you see from that kind of perspective, it, it's not static at all, even though some parts look look slow and, and static. So uh, in uh, my book sort of uh, discussed these two aspects of everyday, like subject matter, and uh, style uh, that has been talked about in uh, in many other studies so far. But I would like to approach it from a little bit different kind of uh, from uh, direction. Um, and the question about the uh, descriptive or prescriptive, um, I found it this this is a bit difficult kind of question. Um, but I would say. Um, in the sense that he sought after the basic ideas and materials to build images and stories from the surrounding world, uh, I think his notion of the everyday can be a very descriptive work. Uh, he kind of build up uh, the everyday, uh, getting materials uh, from the surrounding of, uh, of his world, uh, which is Japan, of course. Um, but it could be a very so it could be a very uh, kind of descriptive work. Uh, but on the other hand, there is another kind of different layer uh, of Ozus representing the everyday, uh, which is sort of kind of constructive way. Uh, he not only just gathers those uh, materials around, but he builds it in a very special way, uh, kind of uh, very peculiar type of uh, type of way. Um, so it looks like he already had a certain kind of rule in his head and he, uh, sort of, um, uh, so he made up all those pieces together in his, uh, in his quite peculiar way. So I would say, uh, that there's a kind of, uh, prescriptive way, uh, uh, going around together with the descriptive way. Um, so would that be a kind of answer to? Yeah. That? So it's, it's almost like he seemed to be, uh, you know, describing his, almost like his personal experience of every day, but at the same time, his works seem to have a certain methodology that incorporates certain method. For instance, I read some article of, um, his use of uh, uchiwa, you know, the fans in, in uh, Tokyo stories, the Tokyo Monogatari, he, very specific ways in which he describes the use of the tools, like everyday tools, for instance. So he seemed to have that sort of layer of, um, you know, um, a kind of a method that gives yeah. a signature to his work. Yeah. Yes. He uh, kind of has, uh, already has his formula inside his head yeah. and tries right. to uh, fit the materials he found into inside that kind of formula. Right, um, yeah. That's uh, kind of his way. 
of the, right. the everyday, I think. Yeah. An another question that I would like to ask in relation to this notion of everyday uh, is this question of modernity. So your book makes it clear that Oz's film can play an amazing role as a case study of Japanese modernity. And I think it does show this fantastic motion from the 20s to 60s, like as his film director and he's depicting the everyday. But the, can you tell us more about this, uh, the, these past criticism of his works that disagree with your presentation? Uh, for instance, you know, his peculiar everyday, his negligence of social political issues, including class struggles or issues of individualism. And I can see that some critics would be, you know, laboring, labeling um, Ozu toward the sort of nationalist right wing um, 1930s, 40s uh, dictum. Uh, but I think your book shows a little bit more complex and different uh, view of his work. Uh, right. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, in my book, I, I did conclude that Oz was very conscious of Japan, uh, the issue of Japanese modernity uh, on its uh, very changing nature and uh, also uh, contradictions made against Japanese tradition. So he, he was very interested in this... Um, were contradictions between modernity and, and tradition in his films. And I think he, he did his best to sort of kind of balance these two uh, different areas uh, of, of, of history. Uh, but there was a lot of actually criticism from uh, film critics of his times uh, who criticized Ozu's lack of clear political stance toward the uh, contemporary issues of Japanese society. Uh, so, for example, uh, he was active uh, from 1920s. So, in the early days, like in the during the 1930s, um, uh, in Japan there was kind of um, well the boom of tendency films, sort of kind of proletarian kind of films, uh, and there was uh, there were these uh, Marxist critics. Uh, who said uh, Ozu lacked uh, sincere kind of intent to articulate class conflicts and contradictions. Uh, uh, so that was one. Uh, and in the post-war, after the war, after the Second World War, um, there were other group, uh, other crit uh, group of critics uh, who I, I think they were, they were more sort of kind of social realists. Uh, who strongly criticized that Ozu kind of hid away from various social and political issues at the time, uh, such as poverty and uh, war devastation and the relationship with the U.S., etc. Um, so th um, those are the uh, sort of kind of criticism towards Ozu. But I took a more positive position in evaluating Ozu's role as a kind of social commentator, uh, if not social social realist, um, I think he did that that role through keeping his own way. Uh, that is uh, dealing with the everyday. Um, for example, I, I mentioned the uh, the Marxist critics uh, in the nineteen thirties, and he, and he criticized the uh, the Ozu's depiction of urban white collar families. Um, but it's from the viewpoint of the Marxism, uh, well, proletarian uh, realism. Uh, but 
what Ozu kind of depicted in his uh, films in the 1930s actually is, is the middle class, uh, urban middle class. So actually, I, I think the point is quite different. Uh, I would even say that the criticism was slightly out of focus. Um, so definitely the middle classes lack the uh, kind of activism of the working class. But um, we can understand that maybe uh, that that could be the essential nature of the middle class themselves. And also kind of show them as kind of feeble, opportunistic and, and kind of sentimental uh, beings, uh, the middle classes in the 1930s. But we can uh, maybe we can understand that's actually a faithful representation of the, that class, uh, uh, the class consciousness that the middle classes had at that time. Uh, so by viewing, uh, by uh, showing them in, in that way, also kind of doing, trying his own way of representing the reality uh, of the 1930s uh, through those uh, middle uh, class every day. So, yeah, there goes my defense again for... Right, so that the, the, perhaps he's actually shedding light on this reality of middle class from perspective that is quite different from these, um, you know, the uh, preconceived Marxist framework, basically. And uh, it actually shows the different ways in which we could actually look at the 1930s and middle class, uh, for instance, if you look at his film. Um, you um, sort of uh, tentatively mentioned this static style and emotion. And one of the things that really struck me um, outstanding in your book is, is this sort of analysis of space. Um, so I'd I like to talk about this use of space in the works of Ozu. Um, you know, there's something really amazing about this, first of all. Uh, it's so complex and well thought out. And, and you know, despite the style of his filming, uh, you know, for instance, like if you watch his film, each character is shot from the front when they talk to each other. So you have this very straightforward, you know, staccato of uh, character talking and sometimes he doesn't move this perspective at all like you're looking at the entire household from one angle but he creates so much movement uh, according to your book and i think that is a great analysis can you tell us more about like Ozu's use of space and why this is important for appreciating his works yes I think this is a very interesting question for me because I, I was quite interested in uh, the analysis of uh, Ozu's space uh, in my book. Uh, many uh, scholars so far have sort of interpreted his, uh, his, uh, his space as being kind of static, um, repetitive, and even restrictive. Um, and I, I can understand that why, because... Um, yeah, as you mentioned, um, his camera usually well. If uh, if you if he when he uh, shows character, uh, uh, he usually uh, took the angle from directly uh, in front of the character. So making the uh, object, the the character in, in in this case, look very flat. Right? There's there's no angle uh, in in this space. Um, and if you remember Ozu's uh, typical domestic shots, it's kind of same. Uh, they are divided into several uh, overlapping layers of squares or rectangles. Uh, and they are overlapping each other. Uh, so it's like looking at a 
kind of greed uh, or like prison, if you may, <laughs> if you sort of kind of, yeah. Uh, so, so it's very flat and and, and rigid kind of space, uh, I would say. Uh, or um, it could be also too um, expressed as being too two dimensional rather than three dimensional, uh, and it's very geometric spaces. And I suppose these unique images must have something to do with uh, Ozu's strong interest in uh, graphic design. Um, he left some kind of design works of his own. Uh, there was actually exhibition in, in Tokyo several years before, and uh, I could see them th- those works. Um, I could understand uh, why he why Ozu liked this kind of two two dimensional kind of images, because he uh, so he filmed. He made film like drawing, uh, kind of design. Right. It's almost like a still life of each character is almost like yeah. Yeah. Um, so it became uh, it became very unique kind of image, uh, but depending on which uh, which uh, what kind of perspective you have, you may see it. Uh, it's not fit for cinema. Cinema maybe. Uh, you may want to say it's not cinematic kind of image because it's too yeah too flat. Um, so that's one side uh, that has been well known so far regarding Ozu, but I, uh, Ozu's space. But I also emphasize, uh, emphasize in my book that this is not the whole of Ozu's spatial qualities. Uh, there are moments when those static flat images or rigidness uh, suddenly uh, break open. Uh, through which different rhythms and spatial orders are created. Um, so without the this kind of breaking open, um, his films would just look like uh, uh, avant-garde experimental film because there is no movement. Uh, there's only kind of, kind of flat images after flat images. So, it's, um, so it must be very boring to watch. But Definitely, it, it is not. Uh, it is not so. So there are actually movements. There are changes of those kind of kind of rigid kind of space, and I can find it in uh, many scenes, like uh, parks, playgrounds, restaurants, corridors, uh, amusement park places. Uh, in those kind of place uh, spaces, uh, characters tend to make more live motions and sounds to generate a kind of rupture um, within otherwise rigidly configured space. Um, so I think uh, there are two different kinds of space, um, maybe, and. Well, one is well known, but the other is, I think, is produced by uh, the dynamics between that kind of rigid space and characters together. Uh, how he throw those characters into this space and how he make them move around and generate story and yeah, narrative, etc. Right. So there's. Uh static but also there's a kind of motion that he creates out of that static um and i i do have questions about the uh perspective or angle that very peculiar to his work later on but i'd like to move on to this question of um his works in post-war 
uh, World War II. So his post war films. You mentioned this really one of the most probably one of the most important philosophical concept uh, today and in in many other fields. But you talk about this advancement of um, female subjectivity in all these post war films. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you can you tell us more about the importance of uh, femininity uh, or the the phrase you use is the gender-based order of subjectivity mm-hmm. in the works of Ozu. Yes. Um, actually, there are different kind of gender order or gender politics going on uh, in between Ozu's pre-war work and uh, post-war work. So there was definitely a kind of uh, change uh, in the post-war Ozu's films. Um, although there was a hint that this kind of change will come in the post-war, uh, in his uh, pre-war or wartime films. Um, so um, put it in the simplest way, um, the femininity in the post-war is closely linked to the idea of the uh, temporal present, uh, which I argue is the uh, essential nature of the everyday so every day is like, uh, well, it's every day. It happens every other day. So tomorrow will be another every day. And it's, it's ever-changing and moving on into the uh, kind, of, kind of future. Um, but another important point is that uh, the temporal present is not completely uh, separated from the past. Uh, rather, it tries to critically interrogate the past in the context of the present. So the past and the present uh, is intermingled together. And, well, in, well past is interpreted uh, in the context of the present. And the, uh, the important subject of doing this kind of practice is uh, the female characters of Ozus rather than uh, male characters. And, of course, in the Japanese context, um, uh, the point that divides this past and the present uh, when Ozu made the uh, post-war films is the Pacific War the, or the Second World War. And Japanese women, uh, generally speaking, uh, because they were not, the, uh, not in their primary role in uh, joining the war, uh, they were kind of second, doing the secondary role in, in, in the uh, background. So uh, they they could have more kind of active position when well the post war finally came. Um, so they were in the position to make uh, revision of that kind of past experience uh, in the context of what they're experiencing in the current uh, post war Japanese society, uh, and they're in the more advantageous kind of position compared to male characters who are part of, were active part of the war. Uh, so they were more like, uh, more embedded, I mean, male characters are more embedded in the past experience of the war. They were always kind of thinking about, oh, that was a good time, or they were singing the songs that they liked during that time. Right, during the war, and yeah, right. Yeah. So there's a kind of uh, failure of masculinity during the war or the sort of end of that sort of, um, you know, the Tokyo story, for instance, as the main character, one of the main characters, uh, the son or the husband that die in the war. So there's a kind of death of uh, 
masculinity. Yeah. And um, woman takes a different role. But, you know, the this is my second question in relation to this question of fem- femininity. It's the difficulty of watching Ozu uh, as, uh, um, you know, so when we watched his post-war films as a contemporary audience, and whether or not this we comes from Japan or outside of Japan, it's, it's very hard to keep us from interpreting them as depicting a typical subjugation of women in in a, in a, in a patri- patriarchal society in East Asia. So if you watched Tokyo Stories or um, Late Spring, we have a tendency to look at them, uh, look at the femininity depicted in um, the films as very negative. But your analysis seems to say that the opposite is the case. Um, and your answer to the first question of femininity seems to suggest as, that as well. Can you elaborate on this um, um, point? So non-negative depiction of femininity in Oz films. Yes. Um, well, actually, thanks for asking this question because I, <laughs> um, I, I was actually, um, I, had, I had kind of problem uh, kind of analyzing uh, the femininity uh, in relation to what has been being said about those uh, female characters, uh, especially in the in the West. So it is actually not a surprise to interpret uh, the way you, you, you have just mentioned. Uh, and for example, a British critic, uh, there's a film critic called uh, uh, Robin Wood, uh, he came to my mind first. Uh, he had this idea that, yeah, yeah all these female characters are sort of kind of subjugated uh, by the, uh, by the uh, patriarchal kind of so- patriarchal society. Um, I I I think it, this is a very kind of well subtle issue, and you can argue in different ways according uh, to which kind of standpoint you take based on which cultural, historical, or moral standard you have. So, um, so Western viewers would uh, uh, understand from their own point of view, from their own cultural experiences, and Eastern viewers can have different point of view, etc. Or um, the, uh, the Ozu's contemporary viewers uh, in the 1950s, for example, can have different perspectives from the contemporary uh, viewers now in the 2020s. So it's a very uh, um, difficult, complex uh, question. But generally speaking, uh, um, I think I can say that many Ozu's female characters actually have stronger subjectivity than usually regarded. Uh, Well, if you think about the marrying daughter, daughter characters who are about to marry, which uh, who quite often appear in Osu's postal films. Uh, this is a very well-known kind of narrative in Osu's postal films. Uh, if you think about them, um, apart from our common image, most of those uh, young daughter characters actually do not follow what their fathers ask them to do. Uh, they either just ignore it or accept only as an alternative choice. So when fathers ask them to, uh, why don't you marry? Um, we have seen that scene very often in, in all those films. 
but if you follow the story until the end, actually those daughters do not follow what fathers told them to do. So uh, possibly the only exception is actually Noriko in late spring, uh, which I think uh, probably has left a strong impression on Western viewers, uh, including Robin Hood. Uh, but I think yeah, I think Noriko is a little bit different. Uh, but the other female characters are quite yeah, quite different. Um, having said this, uh, this is about post-war film. Uh, the pre-war films are quite different. Uh, actually, the, uh, uh, the female characters who are subjugated under, who are suffering under patriarchal uh, rule or power, is these uh, pre-war female characters in Ozus. They were they are under severe kind of uh, male violence. For example, they are slapped in their face uh, by their male counterparts, etc. Those yeah, those kind of things uh, often happen in pre-war films. Um, so it's it's a little different, uh, but still, I found uh, there are still kind of um, kind of female solidarity uh, uh, building up in those pre-war films as well. So they are very um, sympathetic, pitiful kind of characters, but uh, amongst them, among those uh, between those uh, film uh, female characters. They kind of uh, sympathize together with each other, uh, and they mutually understand, show kind of mutual understanding with each other, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, uh, by uh, sort of uh, through their looks, through their touches, uh, bodily movements, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the hint of these strong female characters are already being suggested in pre-war films as well, too. I think, mm-hmm. and it finally became more obvious uh, in the post-war film. Mm-hmm. So much more layers to this sort of representation of femininity in uh, Oz's work, um, you know, and also that we would have to assume a little bit of um, um, contextualizing viewing from their contemporary time. Um, now, I, I'm really interested in this um, uh, notion of every day. I, I'd like to visit uh, this notion again with a little bit more uh, philosophical perspective, uh, if you allow me, uh, because there are so many really insightful references to Japanese philosophy and philosophers in your book. And one of them, uh, actually two of them, really st- stood out. And one of them is uh, philosophy of actuality in Tosaka, Jun. Um, so you quoted him and how the Oz's film is in line with his philosophy of actuality to some extent. Now, What's the this notion of everyday? So, for instance, Ozzy uses this analogy of his work. I cannot make any more movie than I'm just making a tofu. And, you know, the famous saying that I can only make tofu and I can make only this simple dish. Right? I can't make this huge uh, dramatic narrative that describes the era or something like that. But this notion of everyday... Uh, you know, you describe it as a kind of intimate universal, both private but omnipresent. It is present to everybody, everyone. And, it, you know, you have shown us that it can lead us to profound insight into the reality of modern Japan. But also every day has this danger of flattening any dramatic events into, you know, mundane sort of existence. So, for instance, 1930s and 40s Japan, if we pay attention to 
every day of 1930s and 40s, uh, most contemporary Japanese audience would go, that's the most shocking every day. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's undescribable with tofu. Or, so is, tofu is really incapable of um, describing this dramatic 1930s, 40s and beginning of Japanese modernity, or is it kind of like a super tofu? You know, can do more than just mundane every day. Right. Um, I agree that there is a danger that Ozu's every day can fall into an area of mundanity, as you have just said. Um, it, it may be true that that's how Ozu's studies so far largely viewed and interpreted him. Uh, and they often attached him, his films, with such words as uh, Mu, uh, it's Japanese, but uh, nothingness. Or, or meaninglessness to his films. Uh, so in my book, I tried to suggest a different point of view from that kind of metaphysical interpretations um, by discussing more historical or empirical evidences. And you mentioned Tosaka, and Tosaka was, was one of those kind of philosophers who brought in uh, uh, kind of idea of, of the concept of the everyday but from more, more from a historical or even political kind of point of view, rather than metaphysical kind of uh, interpretation. Um, well, I've already said that Ozu's everyday is, is not faithful representation of actual, uh, reality, um, um, depending on uh, who he, whose everyday he, he is representing. It is very different. So I have to admit that there actually exists a clear gap between Tosaka's idea of everyday and Ozu's, uh, Ozu's everyday. Um, Tosaka is, is more, uh, he has this uh, practical method in mind uh, to go against non-scientific, abstract, misleading kind of, uh, kind of everyday. And so he supported film's ability to record the world as it is. Uh, and he calls that uh, actuality, the uh, film's ability of, of actuality. Um, and he found the best example of, of this uh, in documentary or news news films, uh, because they record, they try to record the world as, as it is, although it's actually not true uh, from film scholars' point of view now. Uh, anyway, Tosaka believed uh, in, in that way. But... Uh, Oh, as we all know, Ozu's films are certainly not documentary or news films. Um, so he, his, his vision of the everyday uh, should be distinguished from Tosaka's idea of actuality a little bit. Um, but on the other hand, I also think that uh, that sort of difference does not necessarily mean Ozu's everyday is, should be pushed into the metaphysical realm of uh, mundanity or, or whatever. Uh, I think it is still based on concrete world of Japanese history and society, uh, and as such, uh, works very well as a kind of social commentary. Uh, so you mentioned the uh, the metaphor of of tofu, uh, which also himself actually directly mentioned, um, and it, it was mentioned as a defense of his kind of realism. Uh, so during the post-war uh, years, uh, he he faced well. I, I mentioned this before, but he faced the uh, criticism from uh, uh, social realism kind of kind of critics, uh, 
they say he was avoiding social ills and conflicts of, of the post-war. Uh, I think he knew that he um, his way of uh, making a film does not suit well with uh, such social realism kind of kind of method. Uh, so he um, well, there's a long story behind this, um, and it's a kind of my personal interpretation why he felt so. Uh, I guess it, I guess it's, it it could be from his experience of the war, but maybe we, if we have time, we can talk about it later. Uh, so anyway. Uh, uh, to defend his way of making a realistic kind of film, although it, it, it's not social realism or Marxist kind of kind of way of making film, realism film. Uh, in order to defend his way, uh, he mentioned this uh, kind of phrase of making tofu. Uh, he said, I, "I can make only tofu and not not other kinds of dishes." Um, so maybe I uh, would this be a kind of yeah, I think that's a really, really fascinating um, um, thought to think oh, about. I, and, and, may yeah, I add but... just one more sentence? No, please uh, do. Yeah, because you mentioned uh, maybe tofu might be too, uh, it's too bland, right? It doesn't have any <laughs> right. taste. So how can it really uh, express the uh, what sort of bitterness of, of real kind of reality? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I... I I think I have to admit that kind of, kind of point. So if mm-hmm. we have too much tofu again and again, it, it may be mm-hmm. actually too bland. So yeah, I, 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 wouldn't disag- I wouldn't disagree that there goes actually right. a lim- limitation of Oz's way. Mm, I see. Right. Hey, an- another thing that uh, I'm interested in this sort of a limit of what Oz's films can do and possibly, you know, alleviate some of the uh, unreal- unrealistic expectation from us as we watch his works uh, you mentioned this sort of uh, his resistance toward this exaltation of Japanese spirit in Japanism during the 1930s and 1940s, and then you respond. Your response to the uh, the question of okay, what constitute Oz's resistance to this sort of uh, you know ethno-nationalist Japanocentrism, and you mentioned something like the positive spirit grounded in every day even in the midst of work as a soldier he was able to find this sort of positivity in everyday life but he talks about spirit there again um but do you feel there's a sort of tension between these two different kinds of spirit in Oz's works or he was able to just say no to this sort of a japanese spirit and able to sort of compartmentalize his existence and happiness within this surroundings. Right. Um, this is a, a actually a very interesting question. Um, and my short short answer could be, uh, to some degree, there is contradictory aspect in Ozu's everyday, um, especially in, in relation to its political meaning. And because this, uh, well, the... Uh, my quotation, the exaltation of Japanese spirit, it's actually from the the wartime. And it it was very difficult kind kind of moment in in Japanese history. And there were a lot lot of sort of uh, different kinds of kind of uh, what politics were going on at the time. So uh, when Ozu faced that kind of of, um, difficult situation, um, his notion of, of the everyday, I think, uh, cannot help but face a kind of 
difficulty as well. So it can, it can turn out to be very contradictory. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't make sense very well. Um, uh, actually, the, the positive, positive spirit, uh, may, may I explain a little bit about this? Yeah. Um, so he went to war and uh, he saw a lot of uh, killing and destruction uh, during the war. And for soldiers uh, in the front, this is every day, actually. Right, yeah, they have to <laughs> yeah. witness that every day, right? Yeah, every day is, is murdering people and, and destroying mm-hmm. the buildings, etc., so it's 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 um it's very extra extraordinary kind of kind of experience, and and facing this sort of existential crisis, uh, Ozu I think takes up a position to accept the reality as an everyday circumstance, and called it a positive spirit. Uh, positive because even if it's a murdering, or uh, or destroying, uh, he. he he can just accept it as it is because it's every day. Um, yeah, to, to be frank, uh, this is possibly the most difficult part in, in my book for me to make sense of uh, because it seems like also approves of the war more than criticizing it or or at least avoiding it. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that Ozu was wholeheartedly supporting the war or Japanese imperialism or militarism uh, but at, at least his thought on the everyday had revealed its contradiction and limitation in front of that kind of unusual scale of disaster like war. Yeah, right. The, it seems that he's providing a certain method of resistance. It doesn't look like this ju- sort of dramatic anti-government propaganda, you know, anti-propaganda movement, but it does provide this possibility of focusing on something positive and keeping itself up, himself away from that sort of uh, grand narrative of uh, totality. And, and I, I suppose I could see, we could see that in contemporary Japanese filmmakers uh, as, as well. But I'm, I'm interested in this um, sort of transition that you mentioned between the pre-war and post-war in your book. And you quoted the uh, famous Japanese philosopher Nishitani Keiji, and his notion of the paradox of a change in unchanged. So in a way, also represents this continuity before and during and after the, the war, right? And then uh, we also have this very famous uh, Japanese philosopher and historian, Mariyama Masao, which represents this kind of discontinuity before and after the war. Now, in, in the field of Japanese philosophy, uh, you know, since you mentioned Nishitani and and other Kyoto school philosophers suffer from this severe criticisms. You know, before the World War II, they were not, um, you know, supporting the national spirit and, and spirit of Japanism. And then after the war, they didn't really, you know, um, repent and convert their positions from one place to another and then criticize the former regime. They, they kind of continue their um, work how do you, um, I guess, my, my question to you, how would you respond to the, this type of criticism against Ozu? 
you know, they made from this perspective of Mariama Masao or um, or anybody who thinks that discontinuity is the best way to think about the mm-hmm. Japanese mm-hmm. modernity. Mm-hmm. Well, the same kind of criticism that Nish Changi mm-hmm. w- would have received from, uh, like, for for example, Mari- Mariama. Um, yeah, I mentioned Nishitani uh, in my book, uh, but I'm not a philosopher <laughs> per se, so I'm not in a good position to discuss his philosophy in very detail. Uh, but I can answer the question on the basis of the criticism that Ozu received after war. Um, I think there are two um, different approach to this question about continuity and discontinuity debate. Um, first uh, kind of direction could be historical way, uh, as, a, as a historical inquiry, whether uh, post-war Japan was actually uh, a separate kind of entity from its pre-war counterpart. So whether there's, uh, historically, there, was there a really continuity or discontinuity between uh, pre-war and post-war, that kind of question. Um, I think I mentioned this in my book, and and, and the answer is actually very uh, complex. And according to scholars, uh, the answer can be very different. And Mariama's point of view is, is I think, is very political. And he, he was interested in this uh, notion of Tennose, the emperor system in, in Japan. So for him, uh, uh, after the post-war uh, after the war, uh, there came sort of American democracy, and he saw it as a kind of opportunity uh, to uh, to rebuild Japanese society. So he 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 thought it um, is a completely different system from the pre-war kind of tendency. He wanted to argue that, and, and on the other hand, Kyoto School had a very different kind of position, as you mentioned. Um, they were more interested in. I would say they were more kind of cultural. Uh, kind of approach they had. Uh, so they were interested in the uh, well, Japanese modernity in, in general uh, and its conflict uh, against kind of uh, Western... Uh, oh, sorry, uh, I'm sorry, um, the Japanese tradition. Uh, so they, uh, they had this dilemma uh, whether Japanese uh, modern or traditional uh, and they struggled to get over it, uh, uh, etc., so I don't have a clear answer which one is, is right uh, in, in this debate. But uh, I can say that Ozu, uh, all I can say is Ozu actually was very conscious about this matter of uh, uh, historical new era of Japan at, uh, as the post-war. So he, he was asking himself uh, uh, these questions like, uh, what is Japan? And what was the meaning of the war, the defeated war? And where should the nation uh, go from now on, etc., which is really about uh, Japan and Japanese history, etc. Mm-hmm. So that's more yeah, historical. Very, kind of, yeah. yeah, yeah, historical. Yeah. So, yeah, right. so he seemed to be doing something with that sort of um, uh, you know narrative that tends to break this pre-war and post-war, and his response is quite different from you know the dramatic. Interpreta- reinterpretation of history by Mariama Maso and in, in, incredible, in, interesting because to me that the film studies and field of philosophy has this sort of a same um, issue. Like, how do we deal with these 
you know, masters that are recognized as the great, you know, artists or great philosophers, but then, you know, they don't seem to have this clear stance toward this historical break. But you mentioned really interesting, this sort of emergence of um, new society after the war and your reference to later was a work. Uh, you talked about this distinction between civil society and private society. And civil society is shimin shakai, and and private society is also shimin shakai, but with the private otakushi tami, you know. Um, now, later, also works, you suggested that it's a kind of social critique by showing this post-war consumerism or um, commodity fetishism, to call your work, as a sort of a new emergence of uh, new Japan or new everyday in Japan. But it's uh, depicted as really boring. Um, or it's almost like fascinating, but what's the point of that? Um, now, what, what was his intent, intention behind that? These films that are you know deemed to be less um, masterpiece than let's say Tokyo Monogatari or um, right. you know Late Spring. Yeah, I see. Uh-huh. Um, I think it it depends on um, on the viewer's point. Uh, I guess. Well, I, I I didn't live in the in the nineteen fifties or sixties, uh, but I think Jap- uh, the Japanese audiences at the time uh, found this quite enjoyable uh, rather than rather than boring, uh, because yeah, these uh, Ozu's late films uh, include uh, exhibit uh, dealing with this uh, commodity fetishism. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were quite popular in, in I box, see. Box, was, box yeah. office. Uh, it was mostly well top three or top five kind of kind of films uh, in that in those years. Uh, well, Tokyo Story was popular, it was good, uh, but these late films were even more popular, very very popular. Um, so I think um, the contemporary viewers at that time actually understood uh, what Ozu was saying about uh, with this. Uh, commodity fetishism, because it, it's not very philosophical or metaphysical kind of notion. He only dealt with it uh, using the everyday object that uh, anybody could, ordinary people can find around, uh, like refrigerator or television or uh, vacuum machine, uh, which are all appearing, newly invented and appearing in Japanese society at the time. And people were People had actually craze about yeah buying these yeah new stuffs. So in the context of that uh, contemporary social changes, uh, Ozu picked up on on that those stuffs uh, and he used it for uh, narrative uh, in his films. And audiences uh, didn't have that uh, hard time understanding that. Uh, so I think. Uh, it was all right to uh, for for those viewers. Um, it's, however, another different matter whether he uh, Ozu had a favorable view of such uh, changes into commodity fetishism kind of kind of uh, material kind of society. Uh, I think he was quite um, conservative, conservative kind of uh, person. Uh, in, in terms of yeah yeah accepting those changes, but it's his personal opinion, 
And I don't think mm-hmm. it, it right. was reflected uh, directly in, in, in <laughs> the, the film. Yeah. yeah, the film right. is different. I yeah. see. Yeah. Okay, so um, we are reaching quite towards the end, but I would like to ask this just one question uh, on on. on Oz's work, so that maybe the audience will be able to actually feel like maybe I should watch the Oz movie again, or if you never, if they never watched Oz, they should probably watch. One thing that uh, bothers me, and I'm pretty sure impressed or bothers other uh, audience, is this sort of low height camera. It's a signature technique of Oz film. Can you tell us something about that to make us appreciate this pretty heavy? low angle camera that is just sometimes it's almost like a too close to the ground to the point i feel like really long and real specific technique can you tell us something about the value of that technique yes uh they say it's uh around 30 centimeters above the mm-hmm. ground so on the ground pretty, yeah. yeah 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 pretty low uh and it's very famous uh, uh together with the tofu uh thing uh, this is a very yeah famous Ozu kind of kind of style. Um, it's uh, the most well known reason and effect of using this kind of technique is uh, it suits very well with the domestic lifestyle of Japanese people uh, who tend to sit in the room inside room. So in order to ma- match the eye line of the sitting character, uh, it it it's better to lower down the height of camera. Uh, that's one very plausible answer, and it's very well-known answer. But it doesn't explain why then the camera is placed uh, at so still so low height uh, outside the house, uh, like in the company building or in landscape shots. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't find Ozu gave any clear answer for this mystery, um, although he once said, uh, I don't like the black lines of tatami, uh, that's flooring, Japanese flooring, and there are yeah lines on the tatami. And if you place camera up above, then those lines will be very visible. Visible. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So if you lower the camera height, uh, then it's not that uh, visible. Yeah, it's more prominent. blurred. The yeah. ground is a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Prominent. I it's see. Like, yeah. Obvious. So in mm-hmm. order to remove those lines, uh, uh, Ozu once said, uh, I sort of place my, yeah, I, I want to place my camera low. Uh, so that's another plausible answer. And in relation to this answer, uh, I think this is my personal opinion. Uh, I think that low height could be uh, something to, could have something to do with the flatness of image that I mentioned before. Uh, right, uh, Ozu's image is, is uh, as I said, is two-dimensional. Yeah, three-dimensional is not ideal. Uh, he wants this two-dimensional image uh, as possible. And if you uh, have high up-above kind of camera, then it has angle, then it becomes uh, more three-dimensional than lower height. Especially when characters are sitting around, so the characters are in, in the low height, then it's, it's, you want to low, lower down the camera height uh, too, uh, so that it can be very, very frontal and flat. Right? 
So this, you can understand this uh, uh, as well uh, when characters uh, stand up, right? Then uh, Ozu does not tilt his camera up above in order to uh, include the standing character's uh, body inside the frame. It will make generate angle if he, he does so. So he rather he rather moves the camera uh, back uh, so that the standing character can be inside the frame, or or he just removed the upper part upper body. He just showed the lack lack of the character. Yeah, right. <laughs> to show that they are standing. I yeah. see. Yeah. So he yeah. it's like he wants to keep his uh, frame space yeah two-dimensional space first and then and then onto that space he just throws the characters uh body mm-hmm. yeah right so it seems that so, perspective <laughs> is the primary and then all the other characters have to adjust their position in relation to that yeah yeah it's a very fascinating technique and it's very signature and i hope uh our audience will be able to actually enjoy that next time they watch all the movies um, since we're approaching the end of the interview, I'd like to ask you about your plans for the future. Um, so what are you working on right now and maybe ongoing and forthcoming projects? Can you share what you're working on? Yes. Um, well, firstly, in relation to Ozu, I'm, I'm working on a more uh, fundamental question about his, his, his authorship itself as film director. Uh, especially in Japanese film culture. Um, it could be an attempt to answer a question like, wh- why do we care about Ozu as filmmaker? Or uh, how do we approach him as filmmaker? Or something like that. Uh, so my Ozu book definitely uh, is about film director, but I did not consider much about the, uh, the method, uh, how we should study film director. Yeah, fundamental question. So this is a sort of follow-up kind of research to to compensate it. And secondly, uh, I've been also working on an early history of sound cinema, uh, not only in Japan, but also in, in, in Korea. Uh, actually, this has also branched out of my o- Ozu uh, study because uh, I, I have discussed uh, about his position, uh, Ozu's position regarding the transition from silent film to sound sound cinema. So I'm trying to expand this into much wider kind of perspective uh, that include not only uh, film directors, uh, but also film critics, uh, film industries, audiences, and ju- uh, government policies as well. And comp- compare yeah, compare their views on sound cinema, uh, especially in the, uh, in the early years, in 1920s and early 1930s. So those two are my sort of current projects that are... Wow, it's really fantastic and fascinating. I'm pretty sure once they're published, uh, we will be meeting again and talking about the your findings, uh, uh, hopefully in this show again. Thank and, you. Um, yeah, good luck for the forthcoming projects. And thank you so much for talking to us about your book and your incredible analysis of all the films today, Ujong. My pleasure. It's my thank you, everyone. It was fantastic. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone. This was our discussion with Wu John Jo, who is the author of The Cinema of Ozu Yasujiro Histories of the Everyday. See you next time.